Good evening, and welcome to the John F. Kennedy Junior Forum at the Harvard Kennedy School. I'm Mary Jo Bain. I'm a longtime faculty member here at the school, and I'm really honored to be able to moderate this discussion tonight. Like many of you, I have a longtime interest in Haiti and had the opportunity in the spring of 2011 to organize for our students a spring exercise on the reconstruction of Haiti, uh, at which Michel Pierre-Louis uh, was one of our presenters. But it was an opportunity for all of us, I think, to learn more about the country and its problems and its challenges. We have three terrific people with us here tonight, and I am just delighted that they were able to join us. Uh, Michel Pierre-Louis is a former prime minister of Haiti and the head of the Focal Foundation in Haiti. Sean Penn, as you probably know, uh, uh, is an actor uh, and uh, received an Academy Award for Mystic River, which is of some local interest. So we, we, need, to, uh, we need to mention that. Uh, but more importantly, for the point of view of, of this panel, uh, is the founder of the JP Haitian Relief Organization and has been working in Haiti ever since the earthquake. General Ken King is uh, currently with the uh, Pakistan command of the Department of, of Defense, but was the deputy uh, military commander of Southern Command at the time of the Haitian earthquake. He was in Haiti at the time of the earthquake uh, and was then responsible for uh, the operation uh, that the US Army ran in Haiti. It's now uh, slightly over three years uh, since the earthquake hit Haiti and is an appropriate time to have a discussion of where Haiti is and what the challenges are. And I want to frame the first question to the panelists in a slightly provocative way, and hopefully they will respond in kind. One of the recent books that I have read about Haiti is by a journalist. Uh, a journalist named Jonathan Katz, and he titled his book, The Big Truck, How the World Came to Save Haiti and Left Behind a Disaster. And his argument is not only that when the world came to save Haiti after the earthquake, they left behind cholera, but also that they left behind a country that was not any better positioned to make political and economic progress. Now, that's a challenging thesis, and I want our three panelists to comment on that, but basically to start by giving us, giving uh, each of them giving us their assessment of where Haiti is at this point, almost three years, more than three years after the earthquake, and what are the big challenges it faces. So we're going to just go in order, Michelle Pierre-Louis, Sean Penn, and Ken King. Thank you. Uh, before I answer that question, I want to say how thrilled I am to be here. I was a resident fellow in the fall 2010, and I usually sat on this side, not having to answer these provocative questions. But anyway, Haiti should always be seen under the prism of a paradox. Uh, on the one hand, it's true that the country was taking off really, gradually before the earthquake. And there was a reason to hope, not because I was prime minister at the time, but because it's true, if you look at the figures, if you look at all the indicators, 
Haiti was climbing gradually the step towards something that could be hopeful for the Haitian people. And then bang, the earthquake occurred. And you know, the immense solidarity movement that happened. So today, three years after, if you look at the resiliency of the Haitian people, if you look at the dignity of the Haitian people, you can be surprised to see how life goes on, how they've been able to continue. But if you look globally, especially at the government side, you can see there have been a lot of promises that have not been kept. And it's, it's a difficult issue. We might have to come back to that so that I explain the contradictions, the difficulties of negotiating with the donor community when uh, you're in a situation where your institutions are weak and there is no way Haiti can come out of this without the support of the international community. So today, there is reason for hope, but at the same time, there is still a lot to be done on all accounts. So this is how I would answer, because you said we have to be short, and I'll let Sean Penn, who's done so much right after the earthquake, putting his hand at work. So he probably has a different perspective than I do. But uh, I'll let you give your point of view now. Well, I'm, <clears throat> I appreciate the question, because I think that um, you know, when, when someone like that suggests that um, a, a, a symbolic of the, of, of the <clears throat> failures of aid, um, he counts among it um, the cholera, uh, that certainly uh, all indications are that that came in through the Nepalese Manusta. Um, <clears throat> Manusta was there prior to the earthquake. And so that is not a reflection of anything but the way in which the journalists have consistently manipulated the truth of it to ultimately, I think, hurt the Haitian cause and the Haitian people. And those are primarily the journalists who write um, uh, in defense of them. Um, there, there is in American journalism, I think, a very uh, um, tantalating marriage between those who report on struggle and their demand that struggle remain present for them to report on it. Um, there is a moral obligation that Dr. Louise Ivers has recently written about that I believe that the UN has and that there is a formula that, by which they should be making some reparations to the Haitian people uh, for the negligence of that particular unit uh, should it be able to be certainly proven that that was the case, as I believe it was. Um, however, so much of the way that we look at aid or we look at the way that, that things uh, fail blinds us to the kind of miracle of what's happened in Haiti. Uh, the difference between the Haiti that, that I landed in approximately a week after the earthquake and the Haiti today is extraordinary uh, when looking at it as a as a cleanup response to um, the structures, let's say. Um, and, and, and more miraculous, as the Prime Minister just said, is the resilience of the Haitian people, where what was visible trauma 
and the smell of bodies in the air is now the music and the smiles and the, and the fortitude of the Haitian people. But in anything, so I'll sum, I, I'll sum up because I know that we'll talk further, but um, one of the, the things that, and I'm looking forward to a, a similar panel that's coming up where my country director will be on that panel with the author named, um, and I think it'll be challenged at that time, much of what he's written. Um, but I think that in looking at the future of Haiti, uh, the realist uh, is going to look at the next 15 years and not at the last three and not at the next two. Well, yeah, I would just uh, add that uh, when you look at it and take it into uh, perspective, I think the, uh, it illustrates the need to keep the light shining on Haiti in terms of uh, it was... Uh, uh, evident in the days after the earthquake that the challenges that the earthquake presented in terms of its d death and destruction were not going to be resolved in a matter of months or just a few years. It was going to take generations. Absolutely. I was in Haiti on the day of the uh, earthquake with Ambassador Ken Merton, and I'd spent the day with him because uh, we were working with the embassy and various ministries to uh, determine where we were at in preparation for the upcoming hurricane season, given the devastation that occurred in 2008 and ensuring that we were as best postured as, as we could be. And we just spent part of the day walking through Cite Soleil with very few uh, guards around us, no body armor, no helmets on, whereas a year before I was in Haiti and I did have body armor on. I did have a uh, heavy security around me. On this day, we were looking at development projects in terms of uh, reconstructing a few homes, but there was optimism in the air, even in a country that was struggling as much as Haiti was. Uh, so I think as the Prime Minister mentioned, here comes an earthquake that knocks them to their feet, or knocks them to the ground, and really uh, sets them back. And the day after the earthquake, when I left the ambassador's residence and made my way to the airport, as I went through the streets, there was no hope. Uh, the people were just asking, uh, when is America and the world going to respond to save us? And what I could tell them was, they're on the way. Uh, we could hopefully give them some hope where hope did not exist, so that the international community hopefully can meet the obligations that they made in the days and the weeks and the months after the earthquake. But there are a lot of unpromised uh, uh, commitments that have yet to be made. But I think that we have to look at this at the long term. After having spent nearly 19 months in Pakistan, I look at it in perspective, we can uh, solve Haiti's problems if we put the commitment and the resources Absolutely. behind it. And I think folks like uh, Mr. Penn and the Prime Minister and others who have not left Haiti and are still there are illustration of the glass being half full and the things that can be done if you put your commitment behind it. Well, let me pick up on, on what you've just said then, General Keenan, and ask the panel to, uh, to, to share with us your thoughts about first, what the government of Haiti needs to do to bring more progress to the country, and what are the challenges facing the government of Haiti? And then secondly, what the world community 
specifically the U.S. and the NGO community ought to be doing to, to forward this solving of the problem. So again, let's start with you. Well, you see, there is a tendency to blame the Haitian government too often. And yet, the Haitian government alone cannot be blamed for, what, for what's happening. A large part of the international community should also be part of this situation. We are in the world, and we are with the world in this. So for having been in the government, there is a big issue of timing. You see, there are two problems with regard to your question. One is that when the international community commits some funding, they have a set of conditionalities that you have to meet uh, even before the first disbursement. And sometimes, in order for us to meet this conditionality, it can be the whole time that was planned for the, for the disbursement. So they have, a, they have a commitment for a year or two. It takes us about two, 12 months to fulfill the first conditionalities, and then they disburse 10%. And after that, you have to renegotiate the terms of the contract. Uh, so this timing issue is a big, big issue. Second, most of the international community does not work with the government. So the government has the stick, they have the carrot. So they come with their pre-qualified NGOs, pre-qualified contractors, and the contractors in Haiti are left to their own devices, and the government itself has absolutely no grip on what's going on. Uh, when, even when I was in office, you know, there were some donors who had projects in a particular sector where the minister was not even aware of that. So how do you want a government to be blamed for what it has absolutely no grip upon? And it's very difficult in a, in a situation like this to have the government, no matter how weak the institutions are and, and how the government probably has its own responsibility in the situation, uh, but it's difficult considering uh, the level of dependency or interdependency that we are in to just blame the Haitian government. I don't want to sound as if the government has not its responsibility, but these two issues, the timing and the fact that only very few donors, I would single out Spain, which gives budget support, but says I want it to be to education and agriculture, and works with the government closely to carry out, and uh, the multilateral, like the EU, IDB, and the World Bank. So other than that, it's extremely difficult to come to terms with this. Can you, um, your NGO uh, has done remarkable work, as I understand it, in Haiti, Mr. Penn, uh, both on the relief side and on, on relocating. Can you talk a little bit about how you worked or didn't work with the government, picking up on, on the Prime Minister's comments? Yeah, uh, we had you know, principally two models uh, when we started uh, JPHR, which, um, you know, which the intention was not to start an NGO when we went. The intention was to distribute 
IV pain medications for a couple of weeks, get a few doctors to help existing uh, NGOs, and move along. <clears throat> but it was the, uh, soon after we arrived, we were in effect embedded with the 82nd Airborne um, with uh, the great faith of uh, Lieutenant Colonel Mike Foster, who's here tonight, uh, who said to us, as long as you're productive, you can stay, otherwise get out. And uh, so we said, well, let's try to be productive. And, and then there was the NGO model. Uh, you know, Haiti distinguishes itself that in that you know, one of the great um, models of an NGO, with all of the, the dysfunctional NGOs that are there, uh, there's PIH, the Paul Far Farmer's Organization, um, which most definitely worked, has worked so successfully close with the government and with the ministry and for so many years that for us it was a kind of no-brainer. Also starting an organization in a non-conflict zone, there you didn't have, we didn't have an inclination towards what would otherwise be considered humanitarian space. Um, and then there's something related to the first question that you asked that I did want to bring up because I think it's important when, when looking at the successes and the failures in Haiti. Um, whenever you're looking for a kind of um, a clue as to where a country is going and where a country, you know, should encourage further support and has deserved it, you look at a, a peaceful transition of power. Um, in this case, that was done in this election so soon after this, this major earthquake. And not only was it done, because certainly initially there were some questions about the way in which the election had, had occurred, but the people in Port-au-Prince alone, 250,000 people rose up entirely peacefully. And it was through the force of that that the, that the candidate that we all felt being on the ground was the people's choice did take power. And so that's, you know, when we talk about third world Haiti that'll never make it, this treadmill thing, there are some significant events that, that tell us otherwise. Um, but there is also the fact, and, and this is where we, have to, I think, look at the government part of it and uh, to understand government there better, and in particular leadership. And I'll circle back to the media and how they cover it and force leadership into a political agenda that may not be a sustainable agenda. Is that after a dictatorship, there was a reactionary constitution drafted. And that constitution placed the dictatorship, in my sense of it, into the parliament. So the leadership that is looked at, criticized, and scrutinized is subject to what in the next election will be the election of 30,000 in a country of 9 or 10 million, 30,000 representatives, to which the, with which the president and the prime minister have to incur favor to get many of these things done. So I think that before you can look at the failure to understand how, the, how, the, how the, the mechanisms of failure, you have to start to look at what, what is working and, and, and looking to what ways in, in which those things can be bolstered. You want to comment on that? I'll let the general talk. Okay. <laughs> I'll come back to that. Okay, I'll very come good. back to that. Very good. Well, in the area of security, uh, I think that one of the things that needs to be done is that the United Nations needs to follow through with a commitment to establish a Haitian national police force that in the eyes of the people uh, uh, is credible and provides for their security. 
And I know this is uh, something in the area of security when you look at it that uh, is going to be tough and it's going to take resources. But without stabilizing the security aspect in Haiti, everything else becomes even more difficult. And I think the aspect of the Haitian National Police and the growth of it over time uh, is possible, but it's going to take a commitment to not uh, walk away from before the job is done. If I can say something about what Sean Penn said, uh, I would say that very often the government or the Haitian people are forced to go into a particular road. Um, before, before the earthquake, uh, the international community pushed the government toward creating a plan, um, a PSRP, Poverty Reduction Strategy Paper. That was for what they call at the time the hippie countries, the highly indebted poor countries. And the plan was supposed to be able to let this country um, get additional funding so that they can meet the first millennium goal, which is poverty reduction. And the Haitian government worked. That, that was the time I got into, into the government. The work really, trying to really respond to all the conditionalities of that. And the plan was done, and it was up to 2015. Then we finished our plan in 2007. Um, then the earthquake occurred, and we were again pushed into two things. A new plan, uh, which took place at the UN in March 2010, so just about a month and a half after the earthquake. So the government has to rapidly draft a plan based also on the ideas submitted by the international community. And it was another plan uh, up to 2030, 2030, so uh, 25 years. And then we had to go into elections. Uh, there was a lot of discussion in, in Haiti at the time. Should we go? Is that the priority? But yes, we had to go into election, and everybody knows how it happened. We just talked about it. And then the President Martelly is elected. He has to draft a new plan. And again, we go through the exercise of drafting a new plan. And at the same time, very few among the international donors followed a plan that the government had to draft. So at the same time, on the political level, we have to abide by so many you know, directions that are given to us. And on the economic level, it's just about the same. And uh, in, in, in this difficult situation, sometimes the government itself and civil society have a lot of difficulties to see where we are heading. Uh, and again, Haiti should, see, should be seen in, under the prism of paradox. At the same time, civil society is again organizing itself. There are very worthwhile projects that are taking place throughout the country. Uh, but there is no coordination. There is no, the impact could be so much greater if there was some kind of coordination among the different stakeholders that uh, carry these projects. 
So what, what would you most, uh, I'm going to continue with you and then, and then bring other people in, what would you most like to tell the international community at this point that they should do to address some of these things that you have, you've just talked about? Why don't you continue and then we okay. uh, I don't want to talk too much either. So, uh, you see, sometimes we Haitians have a feeling that they take us for granted. That there is a problem of not really taking into consideration what the Haitian people want, what they need, and integrate that in whatever plan there is for the future. You see, it puts us in a very difficult situation. Just before I left Haiti, the special envoy, AI, because the one Ambassador Mariano left in January and is being replaced by Nigel Fisher, who has a charge of humanitarian aid and is, is ad interim now. And he went to, the, to a meeting at the UN and came back and gave a roadmap to the government, saying, well, you're saying Haiti is open for business, but there is so much to be done in terms of justice and security. There is so much to be done in um, the rule of law. Uh, you have not responded to this and that. And they give a roadmap to the president. I mean, you see how yeah. we can feel when these things it, happen? It did. Uh, so it's true that there is so much to be done in terms of justice, security, the rule of law, property rights. You know, we, Haiti is open for business, it's true, but at the same time, we have to review some laws, we have to um, reconsider property, property rights, Haiti needs to create jobs, people need to have revenues, all this is true. But at the same time, when it's the UN that gives our president a roadmap, you can imagine that it makes us in a very difficult position. Right. Yeah, I, I take it from a, a little different perspective in that <clears throat> in, in, there, there are such levels of that in terms of in, in, inclusive and, being, and, and a asking for the guidance of the Haitian people and the leadership of the Haitian people because we deal with this also on a community level. And in communities, you could be very well talking to um, a young 18-year-old gangster who runs the area in essence and saying, well, how are we going to be able to get our heavy equipment in here and do this rubble removal, do this demolition, and do these retrofits uh, uh, without having problems? And, 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 and I find that in Haiti, it's a much easier negotiation than it, is, uh, than it might be here. Uh, uh, because you know, when dealing with you know, cr criminal elements, let's say, because it's easier to talk to somebody who's not on crack cocaine, and they're not in Haiti. So, uh, and you, you can have a much more reasonable uh, relationship. But to say to that person, what does this community need, is not necessarily going to get you the answer that's the, that, that represents the community. So, 
I come in more and my organization comes in more, there are some very common sense things that are needed by everybody, wherever we are. And so if you go to the government and you say, if it's a, on a government level, if we have a project that is the sort of project that may be responding to a grant and the, and the criteria of a grant, which then by necessity goes through the ministry, and you go to the ministry with, with that kind of a project, and it is among those basics. There, there, it's, it's not difficult to convince everybody that a road that is not paved and has eight-foot holes in it be repaved. So what happens is that the people that you want the guidance of, they come to the project. They will let you know who they are, and you get it in support. This current leadership, I've found, and going, circling back to your question about NGO relationship with, with the government. You know, I have found that this government is highly responsive. Um, and that when, when, when we do, for example, and, and when the, 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 there, are, there are restricted funds that an NGO does projects with, and then through private funding, there are, are the unrestricted funds. And whenever we find that we have unrestricted funds that are ahead of our capacity, so for example, we had, at one time, as many as 55,000 people in a, in a camp, uh, internally displaced people. We, once we were able to relocate 40,000 of those, we also found that in part because of the word of subsidies on the street, which was part of the program, that landlords were starting to take advantage of that. And that if we continued at that rate to move people out, those people would be taken advantage of. So were we better saying, well, we're not going to wait to spend this money like all these organizations do. We'll get more later. So we go to the government and say, what do you need done now? And when you, when you do that, you find that you, have, you, you can get great uh, response. And a lot of, the, a lot of times, you know, there, there are the, you'd be amazed at how many times the stumbling blocks are the wrong time and the wrong place for the argument about creating dependence. There is basic necessity before you get into the dependence area. And that's what, what, where I think um, people find a lot of excuses not to get things done. I want to uh, open up to questions from the audience at this point. And as usual in the forum, we will ask you to come to one of the four microphones if you want to ask a question. Uh, please identify yourself before you ask your question. Uh, we would like brief questions, uh, not speeches, and we would like them, as usual, to end with a question mark. Uh, we would also like you, if you would, uh, would, to identify the person to whom you are addressing your question. Um, I'll start over here and then just go around the, the room. So yes, go ahead. Hi, my name is Carolyn. I'm a sophomore here at the college and a member of the JFK Junior Forum Committee. And tonight I'll be asking the official question on behalf of the committee. In light of the evolution of the problems and challenges that have faced Haiti in the past three years since the earthquake, what do you see as the quickest path to self-sustainability and independence from international aid in Haiti? Are you directing at a particular person or do you want to? Uh, to the panel in general. Okay. Again, again. Go ahead. I'll, I'll, I'll speak after you. <laughs> so, repeat the, the, the path to, to sustainable independence. Yes. Well, this you know one of the things that that um, 
I think is, 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 is difficult for any government to do, particularly a government where there's, there are so many things to be done. It's to be very decisive about the five or six things you're going to get done. And so I think that among those, when you talk, there, there are land tenure issues that go, that create a lot of, a lot of the connect, direct and indirect problems that we deal with. There's still 350,000 or so, 320 to 350,000 people who are displaced. And so you still have an emergency as far as they're concerned. Um, so while some organizations can be you know, focused on doing those things, the, the, bit, the, the answer is as much in the United States as it is in Haiti, in terms of saying, what, will, what has to happen in Haiti for this company to want to invest in manufacturing, in agriculture, in those things that will create jobs. In Haiti, unlike a lot of other places that one may have traveled uh, where there is this level of poverty, there's not a begging culture. Uh, there might be the odd stoplight where, where somebody might put their hand out. But basically, what they ask for is jobs. And one of the things I always look to when I get overwhelmed is that the Haitians are going to answer most of the questions that we play with thinking we're going to get the answers to when you see how much of this bare annual income they spend, about 45% of the little that they make, they spend on putting their children in school. And when, when we want, look to relocate internally displaced people, and they maybe there's a tent school or something that's been temporarily established for their children, and they might be among the few that they get their children into it. The first thing they're going to say before they leave the dirt on the ground, they want to leave there, but they want to know where they're going and whether or not their kids are going to have schools. So I think that if, if all NGOs did is focus on, on, on encouraging investment and, and helping with the education sector, I, I believe that Haiti would have long since done the rest. Thank you. I think I'll get a couple more questions and then, uh, so let's over here. Uh, good evening, my name is Teddy Cherry, and I work for the mayor of Cambridge in charge of constituent services. I was born and raised in Haiti and came to the U.S. at 13. And my question is for the prime minister. Uh, it's two questions. The first one, knowing that more than 50% of the intellectual uh, educated people that can help Haiti moving forward are young men such as myself and other young women and the audience right now that live outside of Haiti, uh, what plan have been look at what plan I've been taking into consideration to bring the Haitian diaspora back to Haiti to do fellowship and educate and help the country move forward. And my second question is, between the World Bank and the IDB, which one of those two uh, entities are going to get the final saying in moving forward in terms of the Haitian education system, knowing that they're both playing political in the background? Thank and, you. And you should also feel free to respond to the previous question. Okay. Since you had the floor. Yeah. Um, about the brain drain, it is true that there's a big issue in Haiti which has to do with the middle class. Um, in, in the head of most people in Haiti, including foreigners who come to Haiti, it seems that the, the, the rapport is a rapport elite masses, as if there is no middle class. 
And it is true that it is said that the middle class, the Haitian middle class, is in the diaspora. Uh, because there is so little that is done, even for educated young men, coming from impoverished families, where the families really paid most of their income to put their kids to school, it seems that they have no future in Haiti. So, so there is a big issue of trying to see what can be done at, the, at society's level, not just the government, but if it's civil society also, to help young people to project themselves in the future of the country. It's difficult. I'll give you an example. It is true that because of historical reasons that will be too long to explain, the different slums that are around the city were probably the most destroyed by the earthquake. But that's not, the earthquake was very non-segregational in the way it hits the country. So there are lots of people, because of a lack of access to credit, they build their homes during 20, 30 years with their income. And then, bang, the earthquake occurs and destroys that house. They have today absolutely no access to any bank that will give them a credit to rebuild their homes. So you see just there, there's something that has to be done in consultation with the international community to help Haiti give more access to credit to all those people who need either a car, either a house, rent an apartment, modify their housing. This does not exist in the country. So it's, uh, I don't know if you've seen the movie Casablanca. At one point, each time they wanted to arrest some people, they said, line up the usual suspects. So in Haiti, it's the usual suspects that only get access to credit. So it's, it's a big issue that we try to you know, debate in the country so that the brain drain can stop on the, one, on the one hand. I teach at the university, and each semester I ask my students, if you get a visa, would you leave the country? They say, Madame, even without a visa, we might leave the country. <laughs> so you see, it's tragic. Uh, and uh, it, 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 the diaspora can help do that also, can help explain also uh, how do they come to terms with things when they travel? And what's the idea of the country today? Would they come back? What would be the conditions under which they would come back? Some people have tried to come back and found it very difficult to stay because they've used to standard of livings that they cannot find perhaps in Haiti. So this is a debate that should take place both in Haiti and abroad. And with, with this idea, that there is social mobility in the country and that we should take, take account of this. Uh, even most of my students come from very impoverished families. And yet, they've been able to be in school, to have good grades, and I would like them, just like I, I studied abroad and came back to Haiti, I would like them to stay in the country and find jobs and really find you know, some accomplishment in their own country rather than having to travel.
Hi, uh, my name is Patrick Sylvain. I'm a member of the Brown faculty, um, as, well, as well as uh, a member at the OLS. Um, in terms of power, uh, both symbolic and real, and this is for all three, and also I would like to tell you, Sean Penn, I, I appreciate what you've done, but this is a critical question. Um, in terms of symbolic power, giving the National Palace is the seat of power in Haiti. Do you think that it is critical, that if, as far as national security issue, that a foreign NGO has demolished and, re, re, and will reconstruct the National Palace? What does that tell you in terms of the importance of maintaining national sovereignty and the absence of responsible national elite in bourgeoisie when the National Palace is demolished and will be reconstructed by a foreign NGO? Yes, I'm, I'm glad you asked that question. It goes back to the very first question that was asked. You're responding to an illegitimate report in the press that was copied by illegitimate journalists, as journalists tend to do. And virtually none of what you just said is actually what occurred. The National Palace plan, in terms of reconstruction, my understanding at this point is, is dominantly going to be the government of Haiti. And I have virtually no, uh, the, I, I have heard they're talking about doing the, a similar facade because ISPAN, the historical society, uh, is inclined in that direction. The cost of doing the inside as it was, but structurally sound is prohibitive. So perhaps a more functional government building on the inside. What actually happens, and this is true of NGOs in general, and it's one of the things that gets me very upset with the, with the press. When the press attacks a quote unquote foreign NGO, for example, the one that, that I am CEO of. We have 380 permanent workers. 15 of them are non-Haitian. The other 300 plus are the most hardworking, devoted uh, Haitians that I've ever met. And it is in their heart that they implemented a government program, a government-led program. And they were simply an implementing partner because there was not one that was being subsidized by the donor money that was meant to do things like that that would do it for free. So our Haitian staff implemented a government program and took down the, Haitian, the, the National Palace, which was a symbol of a fractured country, certainly to any uh, traveler who was looking to invest in the country, it didn't look like this was going to go anywhere too soon with it in that condition. This was an opinion I agreed with. It was the president's position, elected by the people very, very clearly. So you see, what was reported is that Sean Penn and his bunch of white guys went in there with their jackhammers and ch charged uh, money. But virtually everything I've just said, and this is live stream, virtually everything I just told you is the only truth. It's unequivocal. And I, and I want you to follow it up. And I want you to spread that word. Because there's a lot of Haitians who, who you know, that was not even a safe job in many cases. That was a very dangerous building to work in. And how dare the journalistic community misinform you? I want to add something. Um, in addition to what Sean Penn just said, I was asked by one of the Haitian architects working for ISPAN, which is the um, Institut National de Sauvegarde du Patrimoine, 
the uh, Historical Heritage uh, Institute, which is under the Ministry of Culture. I was approached by him uh, about a month ago. Uh, he said, we want to create a Haitian ad hoc committee to see how we can work on a program for the reconstruction. Because this has not started yet. They don't know what the palace will be. They want to perhaps build it as it was before, but yet it was built in the 1920s. At the time, there was a big army. There was an arsenal uh, at, the, at the bottom of the palace. So what will that palace be in 5, 10, 20, 30 years if it is to be rebuilt? So we need to reflect on that. And there is a group of Haitians, among them myself, who've been called on to see if we can work on some kind of programming before they even launch a bid to see who will be able to rebuild the National Palace. So I think, to that account, our sovereignty is intact. Hi, good evening. Thank you very much for being here today. My name is Tiffany Lazio-Cedre, and I am a freshman in the college, and I'm also a member of the John F. Kennedy Jr. Forum. And this is the official Twitter question from the hashtag Haiti Forum Twitter newsfeed. Um, this question is directed primarily to the former Prime Minister, Dr. Michel Pierre-Louis. Um, the question is, how else can Haiti combat corruption if not with conditionality to aid? <laughs> uh, this issue of corruption is very often a pretext. I believe corruption exists everywhere. Uh, it is true that our justice system uh, is, needs to be revamped, and there is certainly an issue of uh, impunity in the country. That's true. But at the same time, uh, again, with the injunctions of the international community, we've created two entities, if not three, that can help prevent corruption or help um, investigate cases that have to do with the government. Uh, within the office of the Ministry of um, Justice, there is one under the U.S. Treasury uh, for laundering money. And, you know, in a poor country like Haiti, uh, which, you know, where international crime find it very easy to get in, uh, you can corrupt any judge with very little money. You know, when a drug dealer gets his uh, load of money and is being arrested, you can imagine how not difficult, I wouldn't say easy, it is to try to corrupt the judge. So there is a unit that looks into that under the US Treasury. Um, money laundering, drug trafficking. There is another unit for the administration. You see, when I was in office at one point, there was a big discussion about uh, emergency funds that we used. And uh, Parliament thought that there could have been some corruption in this. 
and I called on three entities of the government to audit the whole program that was, that was launched after the four hurricanes that had hit the country. So there are, there are institutions that need perhaps more qualified people, but at the same time, um, we've been able to prevent some, uh, in some areas, we've been able to investigate in others, and I believe even if there is a lot more to be done, we cannot be condemned for being first and foremost a corrupt country. Thank you. Hi, good evening. My name is Yael Marciano. I'm from Venezuela. Thanks so much for being here tonight. And I'm especially grateful for your generosity to two countries that are very dear to me, Venezuela and Haiti. Um, Simon Bolivar was an alumni of his mentor, Maréchal Pétion. So um, it's a double joy to have you tonight. We've talked about the international institutions, we've talked about the palace, we've talked about corruption, but I think the thing missing here is the people. And I wanna ask Sean Penn, what is he doing to move the people in Haiti and bring them to have the power to change their country in accordance with their needs, their wants, where they wanna be, because they're the, they are the real shapers of the future that they want. So what are you doing? And um, last but not least, I invite you to join forces with our NGO in Haiti that's uh, working with social inclusion through classical music education in Conch, with uh, call Saint Trinité too. Well, I guess if I'll answer your first question. What, what am I doing? Um, very little. Uh, but the people who work for me uh, uh, or for, who run my organization, uh, as I said, dominantly Haitian, are doing a lot. Um, we have moved, we had the biggest camp in Port-au-Prince and at, at about 55,000 at tops. Um, what we did is we, dis we, we, we learned quickly um, that not only was tent a bad place, but home was a good place. And that we started to identify by, by a census um, where the highest concentration of people in the camp had come from. And that was in the Delma 32 neighborhood. So we went, and that's where I started the first, our first rubble removal. Uh, and in doing that, people that had intact houses and had not been away too long to lose, because they were primarily renters, which gets into as, you know, very difficult territory, trying to get back, people back into places where they had been renters. Um, so what happens is that uh, as soon as we re removed rubble, we saw that what we were being told and what the common wisdom was in terms of people having it better in the camps, there was a similar said, uh, th thing said by a high-profile person in the United States after Katrina, uh, this notion that, the, uh, that these uh, people had it better in the camp situation with all these NGOs helping them and so on. We saw that as many people as could get back to home simply because the roads that had been double head high in rubble were blocked for two kilometers around in this one particular area. As soon as we moved that rubble, uh, everyone that could get back in went back on their own. And then what we started to do is realize that there were necessary services, um, in particular clean water, um, light, because without light, crime goes up, particularly crimes against women, so on. Same, the same issues that we'd had in camp. And we started saying, let's take the camp management notion to the street. 
And also, we were transitioning from camp management by a young NGO that was principally foreigners into a, a growing NGO that was understanding that even within our camp, we started to work closer with the community leaders, ultimately transitioning to being a supplement to them. And so we started looking at community management in the same way, or rather, these Haitian department heads did, and in, in partnership with those, so with those community leaders. So then we start a community center in that community. So now the kids, when they come back, they've got help with homework after school. It's entirely volunteers from the community, adding pride that way. We take our tent hospital. We retrofit a structure in Delma 32. That becomes our clinic. So what, what, we're, what we've been able to do in doing that is relocate 40,000 of the 55,000 people. Now we're down to people the, the, who are the least options. So the people who have had the least options for the last three years are the ones who, may, who continue living in this stressful, very stressful situation. So the next question is now, what with them? We've just uh, made a grant, and on that grant, a commitment to relocate the rest of the camp by the end of this year. So what happens with the people once they go back? Then we add um, livelihoods programs, and we do follow-up on the people that, and, and so, what, within that process, what you watch happen is you start to watch leadership uh, being birthed uh, within the community. And so you can find, then as an NGO, maybe you're going to do a microfinance over here or this over there. But pretty soon, you do want to get to see how the model is going to work. And I'll give you a last example. We, the most people that we have are in our engineering because uh, we have a pretty robust engineering core with the retrofits and the construction and so on. Once we're out of building houses for, for beneficiaries and camps, once we're not picking up rubble from the earthquake, once we're not doing demolition from earthquake, that's a really simple way to say to yourself, okay, because we've got all these civil engineers now trained and these supervisors trained, we can break this engineering up into six commercial companies take the money we were spending on our engineering corps, give it to these guys to get their business started, and get rid of engineering for an NGO, and now you've got more companies. So that's the kind of way that we're thinking and things we're trying to do. If I may say something, you see, after a disaster, catastrophe of such magnitude, there is, of course, the first relief phase. I guess that's when Sean Penn got into action. And the relief phase is really the humanitarian phase. You have to f give food to people, you have to give health care, you have to give water. And this phase lasted quite a long time, in Haiti, about a year, if not more. And then there was the recovery phase. Uh, are we going to build trans transitional shelters rather than permanent homes? Uh, how are we going to link the relief effort to the permanent reconstruction efforts. And now that we are in the phase of reconstruction, whether the public buildings or housing, there is a sense of frustration, I must say. It's true. Some NGOs, you mentioned Partners in Health. Uh, I work in a very impoverished neighborhood on the outskirts of Port-au-Prince, uh, Martissant, which is really like, it was like Cité Soleil, you know, a place 
where people had apparently no rights and things. And, and, and it's amazing what's you can, what you can do in such neighborhoods to build capacity, to see how you can reinforce leadership, community leadership. But at the same time, there is a sense that after three years, not enough has been done. And, and sometimes this sense of frustration can be dangerous if it's not really appreciated to where it is and action can be taken. We've been through that already in Haiti. It can happen again. And I'm, I'm really a bit anxious that if nothing is done in the near future, on a much larger scale, frustration can build, be built and unfortunately, anything can happen. Hi, my name is Ben Bolger, and um, this is a question for Sean Penn. Um, I appreciate your comments on uh, some of the problems with the media. It seems that oftentimes journalists are very interested in the immediate consequences of natural tra tragedies, so domestically like New Orleans or internationally like Haiti. But the covering the stories of, of reconstruction and rebuilding oftentimes seem to be dropped. Some people say it's a problem that audiences are less interested in those stories, other people criticize the journalists. What is your assessment of how more visibility can be drawn to the courageous efforts that are involved in reconstruction processes? This is really hard because it's, it, you know, I mean, more than half the television sets that were there went down, you know, because if you start with Haiti communicating in, to itself. I mean, this is the same thing if you're going to talk about import versus an export. Uh, you know, the first thing they got to be able to do is be themselves and then look to international export when it goes, when it shifts. Um, so in, in terms of the messaging, again, the, the, the getting the word out is much more important nationally than it is internationally, um, especially when it regards the tipping point things that the Prime Minister just mentioned. Um, and, and I think that, um, you know, this was one of the issues because there was a, there was a project that we were and may still do working with the government that was going to be a very high profile uh, project. And we were looking at how do we make this extremely inclusionary? How do we, because it's the kind of thing where the enemies of the current leadership, um, let's say that there would have been um, uh, media coverage of this event that we've discussed, and it would be certainly be a, 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 an invitation to provocation. How do we make it owned by all? And you start saying, well, yes, there's radio, there's. But again, especially in the interaction between international NGOs and the people at large, countrywide, very difficult, almost non-existent. Uh, when it comes to you know, your question as it relates to what ends up being my challenge when I go around and try to fundraise, in other words, you know, how do you give people a picture of that their, that their money they're going to give is going to be helpful and that it's going to be sustainably helpful? It's not going to be just a drop on the bucket. The answer is that's really, really, really tough. But it's tough because if you're going to tell the truth, the truth is not necessarily a bad news story. It's just a real news story. And so when, you know, it's like, it's, it's like anything. Um, where should most money be put in an emergency? In the prevention from the emergency occurring. The least sexy thing that you can do. So. It, this is clearly not a question that I've, you know, I struggle with this every day. And in context of Haiti, I, I find it 
particularly frustrating because it, this should be, I mean, this is an hour and a half from Miami Beach, man. You know, this should be an easy story to tell Americans because they should be paying attention. Um, I, I do want to just say one thing before it gets on because the, the, the young woman from Venezuela over, over there, you know, this is a, again, you know, the international community issues. There's, there's very little, uh, you have the primary partners in Haiti and forgetting about any other connections in, in, in the political sphere. In Haiti, Venezuela is a primary partner. Cuba is a primary partner. The United States is a primary partner. When you look at meetings of the ambassadors, there's either two people there or there's everybody else there. And you never even have a discussion of overlap between the principles. And then certain ambassadors come to the meeting with orders from their, their head of state. You're at a meeting with those guys. Don't talk. Just listen. And so, you know, basic functionality is something we're still struggling with. Um, and I wish, I wish I had the answer as to how, how to both internally and externally communicate the very unsexy, but, but I assure you, triumph that's coming. It's not coming next year. It's coming in 15 years, and I hope I see you there. <laughs> There's time for one more question, and I'm going to ask it. Um, <laughs> General Keene, before we walked out, you said that since you have been in Afghanistan, one of, the, one of the things you have thought about is that Haiti is a solvable problem. Would you just reflect on that for a minute, and then I will ask each of the others to reflect on that as well. Well, I, uh, 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 obviously, after spending 19 months in Pakistan and working with our own interagency and our Pakistani problems uh, over the last 18 months in a very uh, challenging uh, environment, professionally rewarding, but very frustrating, obviously, due to uh, all the events that have occurred and the significance of it and the importance that we work together. And as I look through that, I look simply at a city of Karachi, a city of, let's say, 18 million, uh, conservatively. And then I look at Haiti, a country of roughly 9 million, Port-au-Prince, a city of 3 million. And when I visit Karachi with its tremendous challenges, uh, but yet its tremendous opportunities economically, and I say, if the country of Pakistan has to deal with all the things it deals with, and we can work to at least stabilize this region, surely, as Sean said, within less than an hour from Miami, if we put our mind to it, we should be able to solve the historical problems that have plagued Haiti for uh, decades. Uh, and I walked away from Haiti, uh, like many, saying, uh, this is going to be really tough. But after spending some time away, I come back at it and, uh, and believe that through the efforts of folks like uh, that's sitting here on my right, but also uh, of others, that if we really want to solve Haiti's problem, uh, we can support the government of Haiti. They've elected one civilian government to another civilian government, uh, not something that's been done a lot of times in Haiti's history. Uh, if they continue 
uh, in that direction, and I think uh, everything indicates they would. Uh, and the international community really meets its uh, promises and obligations. Uh, they have some tremendous partners around the world. I would think that we could uh, work together to solve Haiti's problems. Would you like a final word? Sean, a final word, and then Michelle. I, I would just uh, concur. You know, I, I remember talking to General King when he was in Pakistan. We were emailing back and forth, and I think it was something like, you know, okay, now that I've thought about it, I think Haiti should be butter. <laughs> uh, and uh, and it's true. It, the you know it's been said many times, but the uh, uh, it's made complicated. But um, I, I, I'll I'll answer with a final short story. Very early on, when, with the support of Lieutenant Colonel Foster and General Keene, we got the Army Corps engineer to come in and do an assessment of what was at the time considered the most dangerous uh, to threat of flood and mudslide camp, uh, to come in and, and do a plan for drainage mitigation. Um, we had an overlap between waiting for the international organizations, the humanitarian or UN organizations, to approve an assistance package, that which would be taken by anyone who relocated out of the camp. And we had, out of, um, out of the 50 some odd thousand people, 32,000 were considered under immediate threat of, of mudslide or flooding uh, without doing drainage mitigations. So a plan was drawn up, and the plan would necessitate the relocation of 5,000 persons. Uh, it was about 1,200 families. Uh, so who were going to be those families? And what information did we have to give them so that they could make a decision about what they wanted to do? But before we had a place or assistance packages, we had to start using their resources and heavy equipment because we were going to lose the military presence before if, if we waited. So we had to start figuring out how to shuffle people within the camp. So a couple of my guys went down to the bottom of the camp where you had the most pro-Aristidist, anti-us. You know, we were the white guys with the white guys who owned the club guys and the, you know, the, and the, in the market area. And I got a radio call that, there was, that it was getting heated. And I went down, I remember as I'm running down that, and I'm not an engineer, but the plan was easy for a layman to understand because we'd all been together. Uh, as they had in, in the camp at night when the rains came and knew where the water flowed. So to look at this plan of where these drainage ditches would go, it was, I didn't think that was going to be too tough. So I grabbed it. And we ran, ran down there. And we argued for about an hour. Or, and, then, and, and also they argued amongst each other, these community leaders. And it just finally occurred to me, I said, look, they thought we were coming down as though we had authority. I said, we have no authority over you. You, you have to understand that. We don't give a damn about the people that own this club, people who, I must say, have been very supportive. But at that time, this was a, the way to say it. And I didn't use just that language. Uh, I said, but this makes sense to me. And it's, if you're willing to, we needed to move 35 of their tents in about 15 hours. And we had to move them from a, from a flood area of the camp to another flood area of the camp. We didn't have much good to offer them. I said, but it'll protect this many people if you do it. Left the thing in there. We went outside. And, and this is what I have found is typical Haitian. 
and why, why we stay there and stay in love with the place. Because I don't think this could happen in the United States. About five minutes later, a guy came outside, and he says, no one wins this debate. He says, we do it for the people. And 35 tenths moved. That's great. That's a great story. Final word, Michelle. Um, yes, I think Haiti can be. <laughs> the problems can be solved. But we need to put all the stakeholders together. Um, very often, the international community is doing its thing. The government is doing its thing. Civil society is on its side. The grassroots organizations are on their side. Universities are on their side. If we cannot put all the stakeholders together at one point, even if it takes time, but we have to, I don't know the, the English word, you know, to break the barriers and, and invest where it makes sense. I had a discussion with the, with the EU not too long ago, with the German ambassadors also. I told them, You've been here for the past 25 years, and yet it seems like, to some extent, you're also like Sisyphus. You know, you roll your rock up the mountain, it rolls back, and then you roll it up again. So at one point, we have to think about what should be, what should be done so that it's not reversible. And thinking about risk, thinking about Haiti being on the path of the hurricane. Yesterday there was uh, an earthquake and everybody took to the streets. So that means nobody is quite prepared yet to another disaster. So I believe there is a need to, that all the stakeholders get together, look at the future, look at the resiliency of this country, of these people, their dignity and look at the future. Well, I think that is the opportunity and the hope. Please join me in thanking the panel.